morning. Uh, brothers and sisters, I want to tell you how grateful I am for the hospitality that you've extended to me and to my family. I thank you so much for your prayers and your kindness to us uh, during the season. Um, it's it's a pleasure to worship with you this morning, and it's my pleasure to preach to you now. And so uh, would you pray with me as we approach God's word? Oh Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning, that you would shine your light on the reading and the preaching of your word, that we might profit from it. Lord, would you reprove us? Would you correct us? Would you train us up in righteousness? Lord, uh, as, as we struggle with sin, would you convict us of our sin? Lord, would you comfort us with the promises of the gospel? Would you help us to run to Christ and find life, find everything? in him. Lord, help us as we turn to your word now. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We're in John chapter 2 this morning, looking at verses 1 through 11, and that's on page 887 if you're following along in the Pew Bibles. Hear the word, brothers and sisters of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But, this, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Amen. Would you be seated? Well, the Gospel of John opens with this incredible statement, in fact, many incredible statements about Jesus' divinity. We find in the first opening words of John that he is the word, that he was with God, that he was God, and he was in the beginning. And this word, we find out in verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. John the Baptist confessed that this Jesus is the Savior. In verse 29, when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then Jesus went and began to call his first disciples. He calls six of them in John 1, verses 35 through 51. And if this was your first time reading the Gospel of John, if you were unfamiliar with who Jesus was, uh, the first time reader might look at all this and the grand language around Jesus and the gathering of his disciples, and they might think that something big is about to happen. Uh, but the next location we find Jesus in is in an obscure town uh, at a wedding whose bride and whose groom are not named. And Jesus is an ordinary guest at this wedding. Uh, and yet, it is in this seemingly ordinary setting 
that Jesus performs his first miracle. And this miracle, only a few people recognize what he has done, uh, but all there benefit from it. This is the first of Jesus's signs. And John uses this language intentionally, that the miracles are not only good in and of themselves. And of course, the miracles, uh, when Jesus performs them, they meet people's temporary need. But the point is something much greater. Uh, the, the miracle is a sign pointing to Jesus's identity, to who Jesus is. John explains that the purpose of Jesus's miracles uh, here in John 2, verse 11, to manifest his glory to reveal that Jesus is no ordinary man. He is not simply a moral teacher, someone worth listening to. He is the God-man, fully God and fully man. This is what the disciples see in this account this morning, and so they believed. And so as we look closely at this passage this morning, let us marvel at the glory of our Lord Jesus. Let us be encouraged to come to Him in prayer. Let us be encouraged to obey Him and to trust that He is the Lord who provides bountifully for us. Brothers and sisters, we'll look at this passage in four sections. We'll look first at the problem and the petition. Verse one gives us the setting. It's a wedding to which Mary was invited. And John starts with an emphasis there. And then in verse two, we find out that Jesus and his disciples are also invited. And and weddings then and now are joyous occasions, aren't they? Uh, They're celebrations that we remember for a lifetime. They are also complicated. There are a lot of things that can go wrong at a wedding. Uh, Sometimes there are great logistical difficulties, and sometimes there's even family family conflict going on. But now in this story enters a logistical problem. Verse 3 tells us the wine ran out. And, And we read that detail, and maybe at first we think, is this really a big deal? Is this a problem that's worth bringing to Jesus? Well, for several reasons it is. Uh, This would have been embarrassing for the bride and the groom because wine is is common in celebration. The feast would have been missing something substantial. Uh, Wine is an Old Testament sign. We see this in the Psalms and in Isaiah. It's a sign of God's abundant blessing to his people. Now, certainly uh, wine can be abused. Drunkenness is sinful, but wine in and of itself is a gift of God's provision. It's a thing of significance. And so it would have been embarrassing to not have any more of it. It's also something that the bride and groom have agreed to provide so that they are showing that they have planned insufficiently. Their hospitality is lacking. And the fact that the wine is missing would have been memorable to the guests for all the wrong reasons. It's not what the bride and the groom want people coming away from the wedding thinking about. And so uh, this is the problem. And then we come to the petition in verse 3 also. Mary goes to Jesus, and she says to him, they have no wine. Now, and some might think, well, isn't she really just kind of informing Jesus of what's going on? But it doesn't seem that she's asking him a question or appealing to him or making a petition of any kind. But the way Jesus responds to her indicates that he knows she wants him to do something about it. Now, before we look at Jesus's response to Mary, let's look generally at what Mary does, uh, because it's instructive for us. Even though Mary is not, uh, is not rightly understanding what's happening here, what does Mary do? She sees a need, and she runs to Jesus. And this is what we should do. When we lack something, we go first to the Lord Jesus. 
when we are in need, we go first to the Lord Jesus. And what a wonder it is that in order to speak to the Lord, all Mary had to do was cross the room. How amazing. But then for us, we may speak to the very same Lord in prayer when we go to Him. At the first sign of trouble, brothers and sisters, big or small, go to Jesus with your every need, with your every concern. Certainly we pursue all the ordinary ways that God has given us to solve uh, our temporal problems. But even then, we surround those. We surround that process in prayer. Brothers and sisters, are you going to the Lord Jesus with your needs, with your concerns, with your anxieties, with your fears? He delights to hear you. He delights to receive you. And He answers you. Now, but for Mary, she gets, an announce, she gets an answer that she did not quite expect. And so we see this in the second part of our passage this morning. We see the pronouncement or this announcement that Jesus makes with authority in verse 4, uh, he says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, to start this off, Jesus calls her woman, and this is not an unkind term at all. In fact, this is how Jesus speaks to Mary from the cross. In John chapter 19, verse 26, when Jesus says to her, in this, in this moment of, of great desperation for Mary and, and horrible grief for her, he speaks to her in tenderness and cares for her even till the end, even till that moment, and says to her, woman, behold your son. And then to the apostle John, the author of this gospel, he says, behold your mother, indicating that John uh, is to take care of Mary, which he says he does, takes her into his house. But then Jesus refers to his hour. He says, what does this have to do with me? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, Jesus uses this phrase, his hour. He speaks of uh, his time uh, frequently in the Gospel of John, and he uses it to refer uh, to his crucifixion, uh, to the time where Jesus will go to the cross to die in our place for our sin and then to be raised up. But Mary likely wants Jesus to reveal himself as Savior now. Uh, Mary is looking at this and saying, Jesus, here is an opportunity for you to show the people who you really are. Mary is ready for the climactic moment of Jesus' ministry. She's waited 30 years at this point. You think of what Mary, from uh, we read in Luke chapter 2, that Mary treasured up the events surrounding Jesus' incarnation in her heart. Uh, From that time, she heard from Joseph that he, Jesus, would be Emmanuel, God with us. She heard from the angel Gabriel that he would be great, the son of the Most High, that he would receive the throne of his father David, that he would reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there would be no end. The shepherds who uh, met with the angels told her and Joseph that her baby, given her by the Holy Spirit, was the Savior, Christ the Lord. Mary has all of this glorious news about Jesus stored up in her heart and wonders when will be the time when everyone knows. Perhaps she thinks like other Jews at the time that the Messiah would be a political ruler who would usher in an earthly kingdom. And yet when Jesus speaks of his hour, he is speaking of a very different revelation of who he is. He is speaking of a very different thing. He is not speaking of a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. 
He's speaking of the cross instead of a throne. He is speaking of the grave instead of a palace. He is speaking of being cast down by the people instead of being exalted by them. Now, if Jesus explained all this to Mary in the moment, she wouldn't have understood it because he explains this to the disciples later and they don't understand it either. But what do we know? Jesus' death on the cross will make for a greater victory than Mary can imagine at this wedding feast. Jesus will descend into the grave and then rise three days later and ascend into heaven victorious over Satan, sin, death, and hell. And in doing this, he will do something vastly better than restoring the kingdom at this time to Israel like the disciples hoped for. He will save us from our sins. He will adopt us into his family that we may live eternally in his kingdom. Mary is worried about wine at a wedding and wondering if this is a good time for Jesus to come out as the Messiah, but Jesus has something so much greater planned from all eternity. Jesus, what we should see here is that Jesus is in perfect, complete control of timing. His work has been decreed since the foundation of the world. He is God, and he needs only the counsel of his own will. He does not need Mary's suggestion, and she is no intercessor between man and Jesus. She really doesn't understand here. And so all things considered, Jesus offers her a very tender rebuke. But something in their interaction indicates to her that Jesus is willing to do something. Now, this is not the answer that Mary is looking for. Uh, Jesus' full revelation of himself to the people there, but he is going to do something. He is going to perform a miracle, again, known only to a few, but it is a miracle that clearly and gloriously shows who Jesus is. And so we come in verses 5 through 8 to the preparation. Mary instructs the servants uh, very quickly, do whatever he tells you. And Mary here, I think, acts very humbly. What is Mary doing here? She's stepping out of the way. Uh, She moves from trying to push Jesus to pointing the servants to Jesus. He's the one. Listen to what he has to say. When verse 6, they take the the jars that were used for the Jewish rites of purification. And so this was a ceremonial washing that the Jews practiced before eating. And, And this went well beyond the law that was given through Moses in the book of Leviticus. This was something additional that they had added uh, to, uh, to the law. Calvin says that our superstitions are ambitious and, uh, and, and their ceremonies, they, they kind of ran away with them and added this ceremonial washing to their practice. Uh, it, it's good to wash your hands before you eat something, but this was more than that. This was a, on this basis, they judged one another uh, whether you were holy enough. But this explains why such a large uh, water supply was at hand. And that this was not unusual. There were a lot of guests at this wedding, and so there were many jars of water for this ceremonial washing. Each of the jars held 20 to 30 gallons. And the six water jars means that there was 120 to 180 gallons of water. Uh, The amount is given so that we can see the abundance of Jesus' miracle. When verse 7, Jesus tells them to fill the jars with water. Filling this many jars would have taken much work by the servants. And perhaps they're wondering, what's he going to do with all this water? And so verse 8 says, so they took it. 
And they took it to the master of the feast. And consider how strange this must have seemed for the servants to be bringing water to the master of the feast. Thinking, he's not going to like this. But they, they do it. And why do they do it? They do it because Jesus told them. In verse 8, now draw out, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Brothers and sisters, I want us to notice here uh, that the servants are doing what Mary told them to do. And her words should ring in our ears. Do whatever he tells you. And this event reminds us that, at least to the world, what Jesus tells us to do at times appears strange. And now on the way, Jesus transformed the water into wine so that what the master of the feast drank was indeed wine. And so in the moment, what appeared to be foolishness, the servants taking water to the master of the feast, Jesus showed to be glorious. Mary's simple instruction, do whatever he tells you, is a reminder for us. And again, a reminder that sometimes uh, faithfulness to the Lord looks foolish in the eyes of the world. 1 Corinthians 1.27 tells us, but God chose what is foolish in the world. For what purpose? To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chooses the foolish things to do what? To reveal His wisdom, to reveal His strength, to reveal His glory. And, And it is important for us to remember, brothers and sisters, that God's wisdom often looks like foolishness to the world. But that is the world's problem. To follow and to proclaim the ethics of Scripture may mean that you get slandered and mocked. To proclaim that God created the world and that Jesus rose from the dead may get you laughed out of rooms with really important people in them. To confess your sin may get you lectures from people who say, you can't talk like that anymore. That's judgmental, that's triggering. But that is the wisdom of the world and God calls it foolishness. Instead, do whatever he tells you should ring in our ears. We say, let God be true and every man a liar. When the world calls God's word backward, we see it for what it is, the very word of life. So this brings us finally in verses 9 through 11 to the provision. We see the reaction of the host in verses 9 through 10. Uh, His reaction tells us that the master wondered why the groom went against custom and against common sense and served the good wine later. And I think we see three just very brief, wonderful things uh, in this that Jesus did by turning the water in those large jars to wine. First, we see, and we're reminded here, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Uh, Types and shadows are giving way now in the New Testament to the substance. Uh, The the ceremonies of the Old Testament were all pointing the way to Christ. It's as if you were standing in a room, uh, and and the way the sun was outside, you saw the shadow of a person enter uh, before the person themselves entered. Uh, You see the shadow, but then you see the substance. It would be ridiculous for you to start talking to the shadow. When the person comes in, you greet the person. You speak with them. You celebrate with them Christ. Uh, We see his shadow in the Old Testament, and he comes in his fullness and reveals his glory here. Uh, We also see that Jesus is perhaps subtly 
uh, doing what he's going to do explicitly later, which is to criticize the man-made additions to God's law. Uh, these, uh, these additions that they had made, uh, the, doing all of this ceremonial uh, washing was overkill. It was beyond what the law uh, had prescribed. And so Jesus takes this water that would have been used for washing hands and turns it into something glorious, uh, wine for the benefit of this wedding party. And, and then here we also see the provision of wine is abundant. Uh, it, it's, uh, Jesus has filled these cups and he's filled it with the good wine. Uh, Jesus knows and he gives his people what is good. And so the master of the feast marvels. But he does not know, isn't this interesting, that he does not know that a miracle took place. And John tells us that this was the first of Jesus's signs. And John Calvin says that here we learn the end of miracles. We learn the reason for them, that they manifested Jesus's glory. Miracles are ultimately about Jesus's greatness. He is the one that rules all things. He can tell water to become wine. And it says, look at the reaction of the disciples. It says that the disciples believed in him. The six disciples who were with him saw this and they rejoiced. Now, let's consider two points about this as, as we draw near to, to the close. Uh, first, we should remember here that seeing is not necessarily believing. Uh, John speaks of the disciples' faith, but he says nothing of the servants' faith. The servants knew what was happening. They were participants. Uh, they were listening to Jesus and doing what he said, but only the disciples' faith is mentioned. Now, it could certainly be that John just doesn't mention the faith of the servants, but the Gospels make it abundantly clear that there are those who see and hear his signs and do not believe. There are some who see and hear them and then follow Jesus for the spectacle or for the momentary gain. We see this in John chapter 6 when Jesus said to the crowd that followed him after he fed the 5,000, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Uh, you want the benefit. You want the spectacle, but you do not want the Savior. Uh, but some did see the signs and then look to the Savior. This is, what we are, this is what we are called to do. In John chapter 7, verse 31, it says, Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And in Mark 7, it says, And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And so what makes the difference between these groups of people? those who saw the miracles of Jesus uh, and, and, and believed, and those who saw the miracle of Jesus and didn't believe. And, and we think about this because there are those even today who say, well, if I could just see a miracle, I would believe. If only God would show himself to me, utterly on my terms, that is, then I would believe. And this is why R.C. Sproul said that the agnostic is the worst kind of atheist, in his opinion. Uh, He's not, he's not sure that God exists, and he blames God for it. If only God had given me more information than I would have believed, he says. But what is Jesus' response to him? If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So what is it that makes the difference between the two? Well, salvation is the result of an entirely different miracle. 
It's the result of a changed heart. The one that the Lord has taken from stone to flesh. It is the miracle of salvation that the Lord works in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, if you have a neighbor, a loved one who does not know the Lord, continue to evangelize, speak the truth in love, and do not forget to pray for them. Pray that the Lord would do His transforming work in their heart because this is what must happen. This transformation, if you are in Christ, this is what He has done for you and for me. He has transformed our hearts so that we see the sign for what it is, the revelation of God's glory, uh, the miracle of the Lord Jesus, the manifestation of His glory. Well, the second thing for us to consider here, consider from the statement the disciples believed Him that faith grows. And we should see this because certainly the disciples already had some kind of faith, but here something changes. Uh, Here something amplifies. They are resolved. This is no ordinary man. He is better than we first knew. And would this be our prayer as we grow in Christ, that we would continue to say, He is better than I first knew. Calvin reminds us, even full-grown faith first had its infancy. And no Christian faith is so perfect that he does not need progress. The Holy Spirit is pleased to work in our hearts, to grow us in faith. So brothers and sisters, is your faith growing? Is your faith planted in the rich soil, being nourished by God's Word, sacraments, and prayer? Are you enjoying Christian fellowship? Are you being rooted and established in Christ? Let me close here by making one final point of application. Brothers and sisters, with the words that we've read from John 2 in mind, let us hope in and let us look to the wedding supper of the Lamb. J.C. Ryle says to attend a marriage feast was among the first act of our Lord's ministry at His first coming. And to hold a marriage supper will be among His first acts when He comes again. Revelation 19 tells us gloriously, doesn't it? Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory for the marriage of the supper, the the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. His bride, the church, that's us. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 21 tells us, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God will God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Jesus through his life, death and resurrection rescued a bride for himself. That's you if you've trusted in Him. So brothers and sisters, until that day, drink the communion cup that points to the wedding feast. Purify the fine linen garments that Christ has given you by letting Him wash you with the water of His Word. 
adorn yourself for that day with good works done in faith, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And do not do this alone, but in fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And when you stumble and fall, do not hide your face in shame, but remember that he is still the faithful one who picked up the woman in her most desperate state in Ezekiel 16. Uh, He is the faithful husband who sought out wayward Gomer, and he is pleased to pick you up, to clean you off, to equip you to endeavor after new obedience. Brothers and sisters, let us go to our wonderful Lord Jesus in prayer now. Our Father and our God, we thank You for the salvation You have given us in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank You that He has taken our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. Lord, help us look forward with anticipation and joy to the wedding supper of the Lamb on that day. Oh Lord, would You bless us and keep us. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.